Hi, and welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. This is episode three. It's going to be a little bit different in format from the first two episodes because we're going to talk with three different people. Perfect for episode three. The first person that we're going to chat with is Nedra Deadweiler of Civil Bikes. Then we're going to talk to Katie Troisi of Parlor Gallery. And then artist Felicia Garcia about her exhibition at Parlor Gallery, The Black Women's Happiness Project. All three of these creative and entrepreneurial ladies are in Atlanta. So for this episode, my partner B and I drove over together to Atlanta from Athens. B wanted to come with me because he's a big biking enthusiast. And the main reason that we were doing this three-person episode today is because my friend Nedra asked me to. She runs her own company, Civil Bikes, doing historical bike tours of Atlanta. And for Women's History Month, she had a special tour focused on Atlanta women. And as part of the tour, she wanted to chat with an Atlanta artist. And so she contacted me because she knows that's my thing. I know Katie Tracy at Parlor Gallery. Full disclosure, I'm having a show there in November. But you know what? I'm not considering this podcast as journalism. So I don't even know if full disclosure is necessary. But just so you know up front, anything that you hear on here could be complete conjecture. All right, anyway, so I know Katie. I saw that she was having an opening for Felicia Garcia, known by the handle Afrominx on Instagram, and I contacted them to see if they'd be willing to participate in Nedra's bike tour for Civil Bikes, and that's how this whole episode came into being, a true collaboration. So we start off meeting up with Nedra and the bikers at the Sweet Auburn Curb Market, in downtown Atlanta. The newish Atlanta trolley stops by there, and it's on the site of the old municipal market, a farmer's market from the 1920s. I interviewed Nedra standing outside on their patio. It was a gorgeous Saturday, this last Saturday when we were there, perfect for a bike ride, but it was crazy windy. So since I'm new to this audio thing, I didn't realize that I really needed one of those fluffy things that you put on your mic, Uh, a dead kitten, I think they call them. Anyway, most of what I recorded sounded like, so that was very unfortunate, and um, I'm sorry about that, Nedra, but in order to make up for my fledgling audio skills and still give you some of the information that Nedra gave us downtown, I'm going to have to... Do a little bit of narration in this episode. Here we are, starting off at the Sweet Auburn Curb Market. So I'm here with B. He's got his bike with his Civil Bike sticker on it, representing. Yay. Yay. And he's going to start off on the ride with Nedra. And then I'm gonna go meet up with the artist. See if we can find Nedra here. Have you ever been in this market before? It's pretty cool. They got everything in there. They got fish, they got coffee. Um, I don't know, let's walk around and see if she's on the outside. Hi Nedra, I'm recording already. Got my mobile recording device. That's really. It looks like not much. Looks like it. a weapon. Does it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, From maybe. Far away. Yeah, it's a different, you know, recording device or whatever than I've seen 
before, like the it's old stereo. ones, the old ones. So it's got two little microphones that point in opposite directions. Yeah, yeah. this is the first time I'm using it, other than interviewing my children oh. in my bedroom. Oh, really? So we'll see. So you use a different device when you're... I have a fancy mic for the oh, sitting like part. The yeah. the official with like, the headphones. Ex and... Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't do anything half-assed. This is how... <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. There seems, I mean, it's like a beautiful day, and I guess this is traffic season is starting. Yes, and pollen season. <laughs> and pollen season. All right, Nedra, I'm going to ask you to describe a few things, and then I can turn this okay. off, and we can have a normal that conversation. Good. All right. So, um, like your haircut. Thanks. By the way, yeah. Yeah. First, I wasn't sure if it was a ponytail, but then <laughs> no, it's all no, gone. It's all cut off. Yeah. yeah. It's like I had to. I had to film it up a little bit, too, because I had my Converse's <laughs> on, and I was like, no. Well, Converse's are kind of, they can go either way. They can. Yeah. But they were going. The other way. They were going the other way. <laughs> <laughs> They're going the other way. All right, so tell okay. us what's going to happen with your um, crew here today, yeah. what your plan is, and what your stops are going to be. Sure. I'm kind of excited because the whole event thing has been a lot of collaborations with other people, be it public historians, artists, and so. Okay, so while I'm talking smack about my shoes, everything's coming in clear. And as soon as Nedra gets to describing the meat of her awesome bike tour, the wind noise starts drowning her out. Uh, so let me see if I can get the gist of it here is her tour makes three stops, starting with Just Add Honey, which is a tea shop in the Sweet Auburn Curb Market that we we're standing in front of. And then it heads over to Spellman, part of the Atlanta University Center a group of historically black colleges. There used to be six and now there's five where there's a historical marker that talks about the Atlanta student movement of 1960. And local historian Chris Huber was meeting up with Civil um, Bikes to talk about Rosalind Pope, who was president of the Spelman College student government during the Atlanta student movement and who authored a document called An Appeal for Human Rights. And this document helped lead to the desegregation of many local businesses and government offices in Atlanta. And then after speaking with Chris Huber, the group would bike on over to Parlor, uh, the gallery in Midtown, to meet up with me, Katie, and Felicia and look at Felicia's work. Awesome. Well, um, I'm going to skip the exercise part of the tour. Yeah. <laughs> Get back in my car. I mean, those pretty awesome boots. Yeah. I mean, you know. Get yeah. back in my car and run over and meet with Felicia and Katie, and then um, we'll hook up with you guys again. Okay, that sounds great. Awesome. Thanks, Have Nedra. fun. Thank you, Vivian. Okay, so now I'm back in the car again and listening to Siri. Left onto Jackson Street Northeast. Okay, we're going a quarter mile. Looks like we're avoiding the interstate. Good, good Siri, good Siri. Okay, so here we are. Nice tree-lined block in Atlanta. You 
You can hear my wheels on my suitcase. It's got all my audio equipment in it. Walking up to Katie's house. Hello. I'm not moving in. I brought my recording <laughs> equipment. Awesome. The front room or parlor, if you will, of Katie's house is empty of furniture. And Felicia's photographs are up on the walls. Each of the black and white portraits has a written transcript of that woman's story as told to Felicia hanging up next to it. It's a large open space which ends into a dining room if you walk straight ahead. But if you walk to your right as you come in the front door, there's a small room that Katie uses as a painting studio. This is where I sat down with Katie to talk about her work and parlor gallery while we waited for Felicia to arrive. Part of why I chose this this house to rent was because the living room is so large. It opens onto the street. I knew I wanted to have a gallery space. I didn't know if it was going to be just one show or if it was going to be a continual thing. Um, something that I've wanted to do for at least 10 years was curate shows um, or run a gallery space, um, be involved in the selection process. Um, and you were already curating shows, you know, you didn't just start having shows in your house because um, I met you as you were curating a show at Mammal Gallery. Right. I curated um, three large, well, one medium-sized, two large group shows, uh, two at Mammal Gallery, one at Downtown Players Club um, over the past three years. So I did one a year, um, and when I moved into the space in September, I... I uh, gave up on pursuing other locations because this is, it's a full-time job on its own. Um, it's, you know, it's volunteer, but it, it takes up a lot of time um, speaking to the artists, selecting the work, uh, coordinating with the artists, picking the right days and times. Dealing keeping... with random broadcasters when they show up to your house. <laughs> Keeping the wine stopped, um, uh, making sure that the strangers that come into my home don't go into spaces that they're not supposed to. Um, the last show, there was um, there was a lady who just started feeling faint. Um, she probably had a little bit too much to drink, and and out of the corner of my eye, I saw her like popping through <laughs> a door into the kitchen, not into the, one of the bedrooms, but into the kitchen. So I followed her to check on her. Um, but it, it freaked me out a little bit. That's the first time that, that I've seen it happen. And, um, it's a little strange having, having strangers in your home once a month. Yeah. But it just seemed like a, 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 like easier to do it that way, you think, than to, or was it more of like, you just wanted to have more control over other aspects of the exhibition process? Like, um, it's... It's easier to do it in my own home than than renting a space. Right. Um, I don't have to, when, when I curate for other organizations, I have to coordinate with them on when I can be there or acquire a key. Um, with this, I'm always here. I work from home. Um, I'm, you know, I'm always available to the artists or if, somebody is interested in seeing the show, it's easy to schedule an appointment. Um, what is that ringing noise? That's my, my phone. Somebody's oh. texting me. Somebody's just like blowing me up right now. 
Um, so you are an artist. I am. And what, what are we looking at right here? Uh, these are some paintings that are in process. Um, I use my home studio for painting and I have a ceramic studio at the goat farm. Um, some of these are more sculptural pieces than I typically do with paint. Um, they're painted on all sides. So I'm building up layers over a texture base that I'm going to sand down through. Nice. Yeah, and you have that big piece that's in there. That's also mm -hmm. sanded, right? Yes. And these are acrylic? They're acrylic. Yeah, lots of works in here. Like the whole room is covered. i got to remember to take a picture. I'm super interested in this one. I can see from the back with the big globby stuff on it. Oh, uh, yeah, that one's kind of weird. That one, um, we'll pull it out in a little bit, but it's it's kind of, it's like weird um, sci-fi abstract flowers. Oh. It's not quite finished, but okay. there, are, there are stems that, that lead up to each one. How did you end up in Atlanta? I am a native. Okay. Um, I was born in Dorville, so not, not completely technically Atlanta native, but pretty close. Um, I spent most of my childhood in the Atlanta metro area. Um, I lived in Florida for a couple of years. I was a kid. Um, I went to college in Savannah, and when I finished there, I moved, moved back home. When Felicia arrived, we sat down in the same room to talk about her work. Here I am sitting down with Felicia Garcia. Are you a person that's uh, worried about the sound of your own voice, or is that... Yeah. No? <laughs> no, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty cool. I don't really... I mean, you can wear it if you want. It doesn't matter. I, I just... I, I think I put those on just so I know something is being recorded. Yeah. Because I gotta freak out like I'm not... This thing's not being saved. Well, I like this because you can see the little things here. So I'm like, okay, as long as I can see the little wavelengths happening, something that's is being so recorded. That's so funny because I did a lot of these interviews, all of them actually, on my voice memo on my iPhone. And so I was like, oh, did it, did it, did it. The iPhone has a pretty good recorder on it. It's, uh, it's <laughs> shocking. I mean, I just bought this little thing yesterday because mm -hmm. I knew that we were going to be talking to Nedra outside and I was worried that the iPhone would just be picking up street noise. It does I, pick up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So... So let's see what let's where, where are we starting? So you never met Katie before this. You just cold and are you? I think she told me you were in school. So yeah, I'm at a general assembly, which is a boot camp, and so I'm learning programming right now. And so the timing of everything was kind of crazy because I it was something that I planned way in advance, and I didn't even realize that they were going to happen sort of around the same time. So the craziest thing about this show is the fact that it's in the middle of one of my project weeks. So I have my first show and I'm building my first app like right now. <laughs> and what is the app about? Um, so my app is going to be a crowdsource uh, pop-up app where you can find and save uh, just your favorite restaurant pop-ups. And um, so essentially, because... One of the things I was thinking is that unless you're just like in the now, you don't know where the pop-ups are because they're a lot of them are not even like established businesses. They're just these things that people throw together. 
that maybe like a hundred people know about. Right. And so I was like, hmm, there should be a way to to find these places because, you know, they're essentially small businesses and in Atlanta they're becoming more and more common, but in other cities like New York and San Francisco, it's a huge thing because no one can afford retail space. Right. So it's this interesting, like, sort of burst of creativity that came in response to, like, just increasing cost of commercial space. Which is exactly, like, parlor that we're sitting in right now. So there's just so many parallels between what I'm doing and learning and me having this opportunity to be a part of this. And I love the fact that it's in her home. Yeah. Because she's done so much for artists, especially for women and has a really big reach of definitely more of a reach than I do. (laughs) Um, And so that's, it was just, it all kind of like came together and I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like I'm going to look back on this week and like, that was just like the craziest (laughs) week I've ever had. Um, So yeah, it's, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to like be a part of this gallery and, and to just show my work and for people to like give half a crap about it. (laughs) I was like, Hey guys, I'm doing this thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's awesome. So, so we've got photographs here and the name of this is the black women's happiness project. Yes. And how did you come up with that? Like, you know, I, I had a bunch of ideas for these really like creative names like one of the names that I thought it was going to be and I ended up changing it was uh, baptism of the black woman which was the same idea it's just to basically give this rebirth of the conversation around black women because I thought it was either always about you know all the crap that we're going through or all the negative stereotypes that they're placing on us. I feel like this is one of the reasons I wanted to make a podcast about women in the South. Yeah. The same thing. I feel like there's a lot of misunderstandings about what's going on down here. I have a lot of friends in New York, and after the election, mm-hmm. it was suddenly my fault that, you know, like, yeah. I felt like it was the whole South, everybody was down on. I'm like, no, it's not like that. It's not like that. <laughs> and ironically, the South has some of the richest hubs of leftist thinking people because yeah there are a lot of people here that they're they're everywhere but they're particularly the ideas that in the south is where the ignorant people live right and they're everywhere but the thing about the south is that because they're much more vocal about it it's really obvious when people don't think that way it's really easy to find those communities of people that are more left sided more progressive thinking where in the north it's harder because everyone looks progressive and so speaking of the north like you i, I was reading um afro minks which mm-hmm. is your blog and also is that like a project or is that just the name of your it's blog like it's, it's the name of my blog and my platform which mostly exists on social media right now okay but it i also had some essays that i did that i whenever i feel really strongly about something i'll write an essay basically and put it on that website so um that's it's just this platform that is like morphing on its own and you so that is kind of like a it's your twitter handle it's your instagram handle yeah. it's the blog was it meant to be like a secret pseudonym um, or was it 
No, it's just, I really, I'm a very literal person, I'm starting to realize when it comes to naming things. And so for me, I wanted it to be clear that this was a platform centered around um, the Black experience. So that's why I chose the word Afro. And I wanted it to be clear that it was something a little bit different, something a little like off or rebellious or which um, I just Googled a bunch of words that represented a woman that did all these things, and I found minx, but it's spelled with an I. And so just to get the handle I wanted, right. I chose the Y. So it's literally like just me cutting and putting together different meanings and concepts and, and also for it to just sound good and be easy to remember and all those other like really brandy-like things. So that's kind of how I settled on that name. And that's how I ended up choosing this name, the Black Women's Happiness Project, because I was like, I don't want to go too deep. It's like, it's already deep. I wanted it to be painfully obvious what this project was about. Because I think as like a person of color doing art or doing anything, you're always faced with the question, am I going to come out as a black person or am I going to let people discover that? And in this instance, I decided I was going to come out as a black person, come out like saying that this project is for black women and just not apologize for it. It's like, that's what this is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, you know, and so it just seemed more like obvious, you know, but there's still so many aspects of this project that are less obvious. Mm -hmm. So I was okay with that. So that's when I was like, I'm just going to flat out say what it is. Like, whatever. Like, sometimes the best things are just plain as day. Absolutely. So that's how I ended up eventually choosing this, like, lengthy title. But it just made so much sense once I did that. And you, um, boy, I'm just, like, I keep, I was starting to get to, when you was going to your blog, I was going to ask you about Connecticut. Because I yes. remember seeing on there that you, did you grow up in Connecticut? I did. I grew up in Connecticut. Um, there is, ironically, a really uh, booming Jamaican community there. Which and my family and I were all Jamaican, right. so that's we ended up there because basically when you're an immigrant, you just go where the others are. Yeah, I used to live in Crown Heights, which is a big uh, yeah. Caribbean neighborhood. So everything I know about the Caribbean comes from that living in that neighborhood. But you, when did you? So you, are both of your parents Jamaican? Yeah. And how did you end up in Atlanta? So. Again, <laughs> you just go where all the other Jamaicans are going. So they, you know, first of all, the cost of living there is high. And my parents, you know, they were like, well, we just want to um, relocate, start new, buy a house. It was about home ownership. They were at a place in their relationship and as a family where they were like, well, we need to you know, buy a home now. We can't do it because the homes here are a million dollars, right? Like, quite frankly. So, you know, a bunch of our family friends and we're moving to Georgia. And that was like a thing. It was like, did you hear so-and-so moved to Georgia? Her? So-and-so? Her too? Him too? It was like that, you know? And so they had been talking about it for years. Well, it's a lot warmer and here. So imagine it's a little bit closer to Jamaica. A little easier. <laughs> Just all this stuff. And so, you know, finally, at the tender age of 15, they were like, hey, guess what we're doing? <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. And I was in band. I had my friends. It was like, I just got out of my very heavily awkward glasses. So that's like ninth grade? Yeah. You were a freshman was, in high school. I had just finished my freshman year. 
okay. and was starting like in the summer between freshman and sophomore years when we moved and I was like oh my gosh and so we lived in Norcross for a while and then I moved to Atlanta for college and then that's when I really was like you know this place is actually pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> Did your parents get jobs here, or like what? Yeah. How did they manage so that? my my mom and I came down first, and my mom's a nanny, and so they had savings and everything, and so we looked around first, and then my dad came a few months later, and weirdly enough, I in retrospect, my parents are the classic case of an on and off couple. Mm. And so they were in one of, they were like sort of off, but like wanting to move and relocate together because, which sounds strange because you would think, oh, once you're separated or divorced, it's like, that's it, that's it. But, you know, where we're from, it's like once you have a kid together, that never, you're always a family. And so all the decisions and moves we made were together. You know, so that's what we were going through. So we they moved at separate times, and my dad eventually moved. But the ironic thing was that when I closer to when I finished college, they each moved back, um, which was kind of interesting. So now I'm like really in Atlanta, and it's my choice to be here instead of just like I'm just here. Like I'm really right. here now. Yeah. So it's like a crazy story. Before we get into talking more about the uh, the happiness project that, that you have going on in here, I saw one of the reasons, when I started looking at your blog, one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you was, whoa, <laughs> what the heck? What's that? Somebody, it's like construction going on outside. Oh, they do have a crazy neighbor downstairs. <laughs> I was told. <laughs> so anyway, I read your, your post about your dad. Mm-hmm. Which I very relatable, yeah, to me. Um, I feel like I, I you could you could have been describing my relationship with my father. Wow, exactly. When I read that, um, and you put it so succinctly, like you know, you're a daddy's girl. You love your dad. You grow up with this kind of starry eyed vision of him, mm-hmm. and then you're a grown up, and you have your own opinions. And all of a sudden, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. I was interested in that, like, as a woman. And, you know, that's a really something that you don't hear people talk about a lot. It was, for me, that was, it happened so suddenly. And I had to talk about it because, you know, it was, I always had conflict with my mom growing up. Mm, And now her and I are on the same page and the conflict happened in my early twenties. Like, I mean, I'm still in my early twenties, but when I was like 20, (laughs) it happened with my dad just all of a sudden and growing up, I never, never thought that we were ever going to like lose our synchronicity. And we did for a time for like a year there. That was a really rough year for he and I, and we had to like heal from that. And, you know, because I gained my independence very early in life, especially compared to other kids my age. I'm saying, like, you're super mature. I'm in my <laughs> mid-40s, and I'm just, like, coming to, to terms with this thing with my dad. Yeah. Like, so I'm, I was shocked at <laughs> the fact that you have seemed to have this figured out at such a young I, age. Man, I don't think I have anything figured out. <laughs> I just think I do what, like, I have to do. 
And that's what it's always felt like. It's like, well, I have to, don't have a choice. And it, I just made it happen. And with my dad, it was like, you know, he's always supported what I wanted to do. He's always been the one that was a little more relaxed mm-hmm. in terms of like how I was being raised. And it was just out of left field that when I, especially when I solidified in my feminist identity, that he was, that's when the disconnect happened. And it was just like little comments. So you think feminism is like all about like public policy or all about extreme cases like women getting raped. And it's, it is that, but it's also just like comments that people make right. or family dynamic. Like, right. you know, we were all celebrating Christmas together. He just thought he could like throw things in the things that I was preparing because we were all like cooking together like five of us. And I was like, I'm going to do this thing. You're going to do that thing. And he would just like come over in my pot and do stuff. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you know, and as a kid, I wouldn't care because he's dad and do whatever he wants. Right. But as an adult, I'm like, I have a recipe that I'm following and I'm trying to get you guys to try something new. And you're just like, you know, doing whatever you want anyway. Or my dad is a big interrupter. Mm-hmm. He interrupts <laughs> and like not to even interject, but he, and you, he'll never get the point because he was so busy interrupting. Right. And he'll be like, well, why don't you answer me this? I'm like, I want to answer your question, but you keep interrupting me. Like he does that a lot. And so it was like, it was all these little things. And there was one particular conflict where we had, where he made some comments, you know, about women and male strippers that was just really incorrect. So to put it into context, male strippers. we were watching a documentary. <laughs> we were actually watching Good Hair. And there was, it was all centered around this Atlanta hair show. Okay. And one of the hairdressers that was, you know, the reigning champion did this little like hairdressing striptease, but he was like a gay man. Mm -hmm. And my dad walks in at the worst possible moment. Of course, when he just sees a bunch of people getting naked on stage, (laughs) he's like, what are you guys watching? And really it's like, has nothing to do with stripping. And and nobody here is like, you know, it's like nothing that he thinks, you know? And, and women are like cheering and men are getting naked and the women are his mom and aunt and like sisters. Right. And everyone's cheering because he's celebrating black hair. And it's like, it's like you just came in and instead of being like, what are you guys watching? And fill me in. He just like jumped to conclusions and made a really ignorant comment about, you know, women and how they're just like, they love strippers. And I was like, what? Like, first of all, that's incorrect. <laughs> like, yeah. You're just incorrect. Like the entire say, sex industry like is centered yeah. around men and male pleasure. Secondly, like that's not what's happening in this scene right now. Like, so it's like for us to catch you up to where we are. And none of that even mattered. What mattered was the fact that the women in my family were silent. And there was like four of us in the room. Right. And one of my dad, who's not a very intimidating man. Like he's like five, eight, you know, he's, he's slim. Like he's not this giant, like force in a room. Like he's very like jovial. Everybody likes him. You know, he's not intimidating and he's not scary. Like a lot of dads can, can be sometimes, especially yeah. when they have daughters. Mine, uh, my dad has three daughters and he, he like 
works on that yeah. intimidating thing. Like sit in his chair, in the chair when the like, boys come over and like ask them questions yeah. and then sit there and not answer them when just they talk to back like to him. build the suspense. Yes. My dad does not do that. <laughs> You know, so that's that's why this was so hard for me because I was like, that's not even you. And then that's when I realized it was like, and then I spoke up, I was like, oh no, dad, actually it's this. Like it's, you know, I was like explaining what was going on. I was like, oh, oh, sit down, we're watching this documentary, this is what's happening. And then he's like, why do you always have to like say something back when I say something? And he was like, why do you always have to respond? And I'm like, well, you made a comment. I'm trying to catch you up. You clearly want to be a part of what we're doing, you know? And then, again, it's like, why do you always have to challenge me? And it just seemed like he had these harbored feelings of me constantly challenging him. And I'm like, not challenging you. You made a comment. I I responded to that comment. We're having a conversation (laughs) because I thought we were allowed to speak to each other. (laughs) You know? And that's when I realized, I was like, oh, like, you know, and the other three women offense. in the room, who are these women? My mom and my aunt, and I want to say my other aunt. So, and all three of my aunts and my dad, they're all siblings. Mm-hmm. And they're each, uh, one of them was older than my dad. No, they're both younger. So, But like, you're the only younger generation. Exactly. And then there. there was like my four-year-old cousin. Right. You know, and the thing about it is that they no one said anything. No one said anything. So it was like, you all knew he was wrong. You all knew I was right. And none of you were like, hey, can you calm down? Like, no one said anything. And then in the end, it just escalated to this huge argument and tears are flowing. (laughs) And the only conclusion they had was, you know, maybe you should have just not said anything. Right. And that's when I was like, absolutely not. Like, the women outnumber the men in our family tenfold run this family keep this family going you know and in many cases financially as well so I don't understand why our voices isn't the final say you know and it's not to take away from anything my dad does he works incredibly hard I would have never been who I was without him you know in many ways he's the only reason why I'm even allowed to like be an artist now because he was the one that always supported like my craftiness as a kid. Are you, um, do you have siblings? I'm an only child. Okay. So I, you know, I always wonder about this. I'm the oldest of three girls Mm -hmm. and I feel like I was the boy. Yeah. My dad raised me sometimes like I was the boy. Right. And And other times. Yeah. Other times not. Yeah. But like, so you get this kind of, false choice or you know like he would take me fishing and do the things that you do with your son exactly then at other points I'm not this I don't have the same expectations that he would have right of a son and especially like you're saying about speaking up Mm -hmm. and you are never right yeah even when you know you're right yeah you just sit there and listen um, which I am just now starting to say no. Yeah. To and it's caused problems. Tension. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's interesting about it because, you know, in many ways my dad was supportive and, and very much like you could argue raised me pretty gender neutral. But then as an adult, all of a sudden, no, you're a girl. Right. You're a girl and I'm a man. And, and like, not a woman. This is my responsibility. He can't even, that's like beyond <laughs> his scope of understanding. 
<laughs> like the difference between those labels. That's know? something people that I get really like. Uh, that's another thing in the South. I noticed that people will call you a girl. Mm-hmm. Like I look younger than I am, which is a burden for me. Yeah, because I feel like I never get any respect. Yeah, you know, and I'm a girl until I'm forty. You know, <laughs> which I don't get because. We don't do that to men. I always say, just treat me like a 35-year-old white guy. That's how you should treat me. Like, you know, and basically to say, treat me with as much respect as I'm giving you. Because that is really the only demographic. Because after that, you get a little too old and the ageism kicks in. Yeah, that's where I'm starting to be now. Invisible. Yeah. That's the only (laughs) thing that they can say they've experienced. It's so late in life. You know, and with my dad, I think he struggled. I think a part of it is guilt because, you know, my parents, they work so hard and they want to be those parents that are like, hey, we've got you. We'll cover your rent. Chase your dreams. They want to be those parents and they can't be. So I had to step up a lot. And I think part of that is a little guilt there. It's like, I'm a dad. I'm supposed to provide the women in my family shouldn't have to work. And I think another part of it is like, who do you think you are? to have these opinions and speak back to me after everything I've done. And it's like, I'm not doing this to hurt you or to challenge you. I'm doing this because we're equals, we're adults, I respect you, and I'm trying to help you. And what you said just offended everyone in the room, and I'm trying to help you grow. Yeah, you. that's never going to happen. I don't know, with my family, like the growth thing, uh, I don't know. I've kind of given up on it. I have to, I have to comment on this. This this noise is going to be. There's some kind of construction going on yeah. outside. So listeners, please bear with us. I don't know what that. It's like a drill or something happening. Um, it's a vacuum. No. Is it a vacuum? No. It's like a like you hear the the high tones and the lows. Like back. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a dentist office in here. It's a little bit intense. It's distracting. Well, I think um, Nedra is going to be here in like four minutes. I want to look at your work a little bit more and read some of these. So let's let's do a little. I really wish they would be quiet. (laughs) I cannot see. Somebody is like right under us with some kind of power like tool or something. Drill, yeah. Um, okay, good. They're okay. stopping. So, so these are all. Uh, this is a black and white series of portraits of women. Did you print these yourself? I went to Creative Approach to print them. A life-saving organization. <laughs> so these are digital. I, this is actually the first time I've even printed my photography. I've always just worked online and done digital for just viewing online and social media and so that was another challenge it was like where do I get to get these printed like <laughs> figure all that out so I went to a creative approach and they helped me size everything to proportion to the frames and they printed them and it was a very affordable <laughs> rate so and how many different women did you talk to so you've got I talked to nine people Okay, and you said you interviewed each one of them. Yes. And what kind of questions did you ask them? You know, what I did was I talked to them about what the project was about and just turned on the reporter and was like, just start rambling. Just Mm -hmm. talk to me. Just vent. It was basically a vent session. 
And I find that when my friends and I are venting to one another, just all this brilliance comes out. Right. Especially when we're talking about our experiences as women or people of color or queer people or whatever it is. So I was like, I think if I let them just go on and on and on, in that I'm, it was some of them it was like an hour long, in that I can find some just mic dropping moments. And then I went through, I transcribed everything too. So I went back and wrote a bunch of stuff down and then word for word what they said mm-hmm. and took the, what I felt like was the most important thing that they said and then printed them on those sheets of paper that you see around. So these are really what the women actually said. And so I really wanted to take their voices and pair them with the photos because I wanted this to not just be like a portrait series, but I wanted it to get people to really think about this subject and really kind of think like whether you're or not you fall under this demographic that I'm targeting. It's like, you know, am I really going after what makes me happy? You know, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it doesn't have to be chasing this one-off dream. It can just be like, you know, are you just, do you have day-to-day self-care? A lot of people don't even think about that. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and as women, we're expected to give so much in our lives. So it's like, where are we going to pull from if right. we're not replenishing that resource so part of this conversation was about that as well and I was just thinking about myself and you know this trip that I just told you about when when we went to visit my family I was like that's when I realized how differently I think than the other one in my family because I was so quick to be like wait a minute dad hold on you know and they were so quick to hide and that it's not just in those instances where I differ from them. It's like, I'm the one that is like, I'll do anything, even if I don't know where it's going to go. Like I'll do a project like this, even though I have no idea who's going to show it. I feel like we that. have a lot in common that way. <laughs> I feel like I jumped yeah. over so these, these women, you mentioned that you, you let them ramble and you, how did you pick them? Do they all have something where they're pursuing a certain dream? You mentioned the, that. Yes. So I basically, it was through my network and I, I did make a post on, are you familiar with dream warriors on mm-hmm. Facebook? So dream warriors is this really great feminist group on Facebook and they're all over, but they're primarily in Atlanta. And so I made a post in the women of color sector. There's all these little branches of it on there and was like, Hey, I'm doing this project. I need some people. So some of the girls I found through that, some of them were just my own friends that I knew were taking names and kicking butt. Mm -hmm. And others were just people that I've met, you know, like Teresa was a poet that was playing at, uh, or reading her work at Java monkey. And she was featured that day. And I was like, perfect. So I, I literally, some of them, I was like, Hey person, I don't know you, but can you do this huge favor and be a part of this project that I'm doing that you may not see for six months? Like, you know, and, and, and the final, so the final result is we have the photos. Yeah. We have, um, the women's statements next to the photos about their lives. And did you always foresee it ending up in this form, like in a gallery or did you think about, I had like, no idea. Okay. I had at first I was like, 
maybe I should put it on Instagram and just make it like this series that I did. And then, and then I was like, maybe I should put it on my blog and just have like this intense content for like six weeks. And then I thought, what if I had a show? And then I was like, who's going to do it? Like I had no idea. So then I thought about maybe doing hosting it at my place and doing a thing there. And then it was just constantly this thing of like, I have no idea what I'm going to do about it. And my last resort was a friend of mine who's a much nicer apartment than I do was like, you can use my space. I do stuff like that all the time. So I was like, cool, I'll get back to you. And then the submission um, post came in from Katie and I think it was on Dream Warriors, if I'm not mistaken, too. And so it I was, was like, yeah. And so I was like, great, I'll do that. <laughs> and so that, that's when it all really came together. And the decision to make the photos black and white literally happened, like, in the last two weeks. Because, you know, financially it was really tough to get everything printed. And I was like, okay, if I do black and white, I know that will cut my costs. And then in that, I was like, it actually brings everything more cohesive because all of these photos I took at a completely different location Mm. and the black and white aspect made everything flow together a lot better because if you were to see the color version some of them are colder than others some of them are warmer than others some of them like it just it even though my style is very clear as far as like the background and everything going on there they are so different and so doing it black and white really really helps me kind of create this cohesive look for the project and so it, it all these things just happen out of necessity <laughs> and are you gonna um like are these gonna be on a website or anything so if I want to I think I web- will I okay. think I will so um after the show I, I have a ton more photos also so I'm just going to start posting them. Um, I saved an Instagram account months ago with this name that mm-hmm. I haven't used just to, so no one could take the handle. And so I think I'm just going to start a, a whole other brand just around this because I would love to just continue doing this and possibly even making like a little mini docu-series on YouTube about it because I just think it's a conversation that there's so much more to it and so much more people can contribute to it. And I wanted to get an even wider age range, like even younger girls or even older women, because I didn't want this thing to just be about millennials. Right. You know, I think millennials are the ones that are like, why do we work 60 hours a week? (laughs) Why is everybody miserable? Like asking those questions. And I was like, no, this is a question for anybody. Like if you can think about it and talk about it, you deserve to be a part of this conversation. So this is definitely the beginning of this project for sure. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's 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 just, I don't know, it's one of my like life, I don't want to say goal, but it's it's one of the ways that I think I can contribute to my the space around me. The cyclist showed up just as Felicia and I were going into the gallery to look at her work, and Felicia talked to the group about her work and answered some questions. The show was only up for one night, but I hope you'll all follow Felicia online to see how this project continues to develop. 
You can find some pictures and links to Civil Bikes, Parlor Gallery, and Felicia's work on my website, VivianLiddell.com, V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L, on the Peachy Keen page. Thanks so much to Nedra Deadweiler for spearheading this episode, Katie Troisi for welcoming us all into your space and supporting other Atlanta artists with your vision and hard work, and to Felicia Garcia for sharing your stories. Next weekend, I'm taking the show on the road to Research Triangle, North Carolina, where I'll be speaking to Betsy Greer, author of Craftivism, The Art and Craft of Activism, and to artist Joyce Watkins-King. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can make pledges and get cool stuff like a PG Keen bumper sticker. Thanks for listening, and I hope the rest of your day is PG Keen.